Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Who Dat Jedi podcast. Um, Dave, I've been wrong for the last couple weeks. This is actually episode 188, correct? Uh, yes, yeah. let me verify, though. So for the for the people who are, you know, yes. completists, you know, and have to have every... Um, I, I've given you a peg chaser, um, you know, the, the, the one figure that you have to, you know, you have to find out where it was that I went wrong and <laughs> in the numbering. Um, so the, the, the problem with that though, is I've edited it out. So people are going to have to see if they can hear where the edit occurs. They'll have, and, uh, if yeah. you can, if you can figure it out, you'll get our, um, I don't know. We'll buy you a beer. Seal um, of approval. So, um, but yeah, this is episode 188. Uh, and uh, as I'm Aaron, and with me as always is Fredo and Dave. Guys, how are we doing? We are good. I am good. Yeah, doing okay. All things considered. All, all things considered. Is somebody invading Algiers Point or? <laughs> well, not, not that I know of yet. We'll see. And I and we're recording on it on a Tuesday, and I just got a notification that the Pelicans are up at halftime, and the game is apparently on some uh, station bounce TV that yep. you have to have like regular old cable, and if you have like any like YouTube TV or AT and T or any of this or Direct TV, you can't watch the game. So mm-hmm. if you hear swearing in the background, it's my wife um, because she can't watch the game tonight. So anyway. Wait, wait, you, you, she can't watch and I can? I mean, don't you have over the air bunny antennas? Well, I asked about that, but she said, no, I've got other stuff I need to do. So that, you know, I just been been married almost, you know, 28 years. I know when to walk away. So, um, <laughs> so she's, she's following it on. She's got the Pelicans app, so it's all good. Um, but we also have a special guest tonight. This is going to be a fun episode. Um, and uh, so Derek Bridges. Hey, Derek, how are we doing? Hey, y'all. Nice to meet y'all in person, sort of. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be going to be diving into um, Derek has uh, is a filmmaker and is the director of a film, The Man in the Red Beret. Um, we're going to find out what that's about. Um, we're going to ask him some Star Wars questions. Of course, we're going to rope him into Star Wars trivia um, as best we can. So, um, but uh, yeah, so let's just get right into the trivia because there's not a whole lot of hubbub to talk about. We could talk about some weird Saints news or, but there's really nothing there. So um, yeah, let's just dive right into the star wars trivia again derek this is um episodes one through six um it is from the (laughs) trivial pursuit dvd star wars saga edition um dave's kids have beaten us so um like i said it's uh very low stress um and uh so i will start with dave you get the first question um, what character, a bit unsteady on his feet, observes, quote, I'm not sure this floor is entirely stable? That's uh, C-3PO. You, di- you didn't let me repeat it for dramatic effect. Gee whiz. Man. Teacher, teacher, call on me, Hermione Granger. Okay. <laughs> it is C-3PO. Yes, that is correct. Very good. Very good. I'm a little honor yeah. mood right now. One right. of the rare occasions in which my brain uh, fired off the answer quickly. Yes. <laughs> right on. Um, Fredo, to you. Mm-hmm. Who describes Luke Skywalker as too old? <laughs> you want to read that one again? For dramatic effect. Who describes yeah. Luke Skywalker as too old? Uh, that would be the one and only Master Yoda. It is Yoda. It is Yoda. All right. So, Derek, I'm going to ask you a, que- a couple questions, though. This is not a trivia question. Um, favorite Star Wars movie? Um, I would say the first one. A New Hope? Okay, so episode four. Cool. Yeah. Um, episode four. Yeah, you started with four, right? Yeah, yeah right on. Okay. Um, and you've probably seen that one the most? Yes. All right. Cool. So, 
to you. Here is your question. And we're going to give you, um, since you didn't know you were being roped into this, you can have a phone a friend. But I think you should be able to get this. Who tries to lock down a loose stabilizer during the first Death Star battle? For dramatic can you, effect. Can you re- re- yeah, yep. repeat the question for me there. You bet. Who tries to lock down a loose stabilizer during the first Death Star battle? Um... So we'll give you we'll give you a clue. Not human. R two D two. Bingo! There you go. There you go. Absolutely, oh, it was R two D two. Yes, yes. Got it. All right. Wow. And uh, to me, the first one I see here: Who earns Yoda's praise? Fought well, you have, my old Padawan. Who earns Yoda's praise? Fought well, you have, my old Padawan. And that was Count Dooku or Darth Tyrannus. Yes. Bing, bing, bing. All right. Brains are all warmed up for Star Wars. Um, looks like what? Fredo, we got... that. that was... What's that? I'm sorry, Derek? That's three in a row that people have gotten it correct, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we... Yeah, we're... It, it's kind of... We, sometimes we get these, like, obscure... You know, sometimes you get real big softball questions, you know... But then you get these obscure, like I've said before, like what's the name of the third Star Destroyer scene in, you know, Empire Strikes Back. So um, it gets a little gets a little hairy from time to time. And like I said, though, Dave's Dave's kids has beaten us before. So Um, Fredo, we got look like one little bit of news here. Yeah, just just mentioned right quick that uh, the SAG Awards are on, I believe, this Sunday and. We gotta extend congratulations to Tim Jarrett himself, Pedro Pascal, who won the SAG for uh, award for best actor in a uh, in a drama series, uh, which was his role in The Last of Us. Which, if you haven't seen his acceptance speech, go look it up on all over social media. He wasn't expecting to win it, so he's like got his tuxedo coat off, his vest off, tie off. He's just in a white shirt, he's been drinking, and he <laughs> clearly was not expecting to get up on on that stage. And it's like, and he even says, "I'm a little drunk. I thought I could get drunk, <laughs> you know. I'm making a fool of myself." But thank you so much. So, you know, it's, it's recognition. Look, Star Wars was there first with, well, yeah, uh, giving him a lead, and uh, you know, now everybody's uh, caught on to the Pedro train, so to speak. Cool. Yeah, otherwise, <clears throat> things are kind of slow news-wise in Star Wars land. So um, so I guess, uh, Dave, I'm going to toss it to you. Why don't we give a, a better formal introduction to our of our guest here? And uh, so... Then... Sure. Um, so uh, Derek and I have known each other forever. Uh, you know, just <laughs> Actually, a couple of years now. Um, we worked together at Tulane. And... Um, we kept hearing, you know, he'd come into work and he'd talk about this movie that he'd done and that he was working on and that it just came up as a topic of conversation um, several times. And this, this mysterious movie, this this filmmaker in our midst. And um, and then uh, eventually um, he said, I, I've, I've got it, basically. Um, you're always tinkering. Um, and you're always feeling like you need to tinker, but um, you've submitted it to several um, festivals at this point, and uh, and have even uh, you won uh, an award uh, for best film at uh, one festival. We can ask you a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, the man in the red beret. Um, I'd love to know just like the the shorthand version of how you would describe this movie to anybody who's yet to see it and. And, and is listening to this and might be interested in uh, in checking out what a local filmmaker here in New Orleans um, created. Thank you, David. Um, well, I think if you come in, if you're visiting New Orleans or you live in New Orleans and you get down in the quarter, some people don't go down there if they live here, they, they avoid it, but whatever. Usually people make their way down to the quarter at some point. And you're going down Decatur Street, um, kind of lower Decatur, not too far from Esplanade, maybe half a dozen blocks. The Gazebo Cafe is there. And right on the sidewalk, near Gazebo Cafe and Southern Candy Makers and 
across the street from Cafe Spiza's is uh, Jude Acres and his world chess table. And he set up in that, that roughly that spot um, since 1982. And he plays people for $5 a, 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 a play, me, he plays chess games for people for $5 a game. And he's been doing that. So when he first started, it was like three bucks a game. He's moved up to five bucks. So, uh, yeah. And so I first, so Jude, as I said, he's a landmark there. Everyone know, uh, knows the guy with the Red Beret and the chess sets set up down there. And they've seen him for years, may not know much about him. A lot of people have played them. So, you know, you run into stories in surprising places sometimes with people who have Jude stories. But anyway, um, I first uh, came into learning about Jude was uh, I'd moved to New Orleans in 1998. I've been working. I was working at the library at Loyola University. And you would come in late at night and use the computers there. Uh, there were like a half dozen public computers. And I'd go around later on and see be playing games of chess, writing things emails and so forth anyway and, and i think it was 2000 the oxford american magazine uh published a cover story about jude and got into a lot of his backstory getting to how uh he, he was a you know as a, when he was at lsu he played bobby fisher when bobby fisher came through baton rouge new orleans and they hung out a weekend together and then later on he went to san francisco living in haight ashbury like 68 meeting you know janice joplin a bunch of other music folks, and uh, and he then in the seventies when Bobby Fischer won a world championship in chess, uh, there was a chess boom, and Jude toured the country uh, giving chess exhibitions. So I read that article. And I was just getting into photography at the time. Um, I had gone to graduate school for creative writing, um, but then I had a you know I got married, had a kid, and needed to get health insurance, and uh, so uh, I wasn't making a living as a writer, and so. Uh, that's why I started working in the libraries. And later on, I got, as I was at Loyola, I got a job as an academic counselor, which I did for a very long time. Um, and so these were kind of honorable day jobs. And uh, so on, uh, at night, I, would, I got into photography. And then you know, Jude, I met him in 2000. I took some pictures of him. And, um, and uh, in fact, he, I, I gave him a nice fiber print, uh, really like 11 by 17 print. Um, black and white print of uh, him in an exhibition. He's like, oh, this is amazing. Uh, millions of people are going to see this photo and you're going to get a check in the mail. And uh, and, lo and lo I did get a $100 check in the mail a few weeks later. And it was on his website, the judeacres.com way back then. Um, someone uh, who's no longer with us had that website form. Um, and so that's 2000. Or so I did the pictures for a bit. And then I just, uh, you know, I kind of drifted away and Maybe about a decade later, I kind of was getting back into writing again, and I started this website called b2l2.com, and I had a bunch of friends, folks like you, you know, uh, journalists, unemployed journalists, artists, academics, uh, people who want to uh, do things in the media, and uh, they all contributed to my website. And so to kind of like encourage that endeavor, I was thinking about what can I, what can I do a really big deep dive on and write about? And then Jude Akers came to mind again. And so that's, so this is like 2011. So I knew him, you know, 10, 11 years at that point. And, uh, and I wrote a really big article about him. I spent time at, down at Cafe de Man, um, and recorded several hours of conversation, transcribed it all, wrote a big article about him. And, uh, and it was fun. It was like, uh, people liked it. And, and, uh, Jude had a blast with it. If you, if you've seen the movie, you know how Jude is, uh, a very enthusiastic, enthusiastic fellow and uh, loves promotion. And uh, so anyway, so, and at the same time, when I published that article, I, I, I bought the URL to judeacres.com. So the original owner of that guy named Paul Reifsneider, interesting aside, he uh, was, Jude described him as a sort of super pilot, airline pilot, where he can fly, go on any flight. And if he, if he deems the pilot unworthy, he could pull him off the plane. And not, not allow them to fly again. I, I don't know how these people. They're, apparently, they're among us. Uh, anyway, so uh, Paul Reichsteiner, he died in a hang gliding accident in Hawaii. In fact, so so these are kind of sides you get from Jude. You do backstories. Um, so that guy died. Lost the URL. I bought the URL. Uh, put it judeacres.com. Wrote the article, and my friend Trey Diark said, "Hey, you know, by then I was shooting with a digital Canon Rebel, uh, uh, you know, camera." And 
he was saying, you know, people are using DSLR cameras to make movies. Um, you got a great story. We should make a documentary about Jude. So Trey and I started making it. And, um, you know, I'm going into all this detail, but it's like kind of the nature of this thing since it's gone on for so long. I, I kind of feel like I have to kind of wrap, wrap you through this story. But at any rate, so that's how I started making the documentary 12 years ago. Well, it's clearly a labor of love, right? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It just, it just kept going. Like, there were all the just getting to the point of inspiration to make the movie itself. You're talking like decades. Um, right. There's a lot so, of time that went into that. Yeah. And yeah. And then, and then the making of the movie, it took you a, a long time to get over the finish line because you're talking, you were talking like 2011. Um, with some of the website stuff and so um i guess the question yeah that would that i would follow up with would be like what inspired you to ultimately just see it through and finish it like because i imagine it was just well, okay. so much work well i mentioned my honorable honorable day jobs as in a library or an economic counselor and so forth and those were all fine and good but you know i went to grad school to be a writer i wanted to do creative work i wanted to make stuff and so that wasn't scratching out an itch um and so this I, I i saw this documentary as a way as a means to get out of that life and then something closer to you know the creative life i'd hoped for myself um and so that's that's really what what drove me to keep drive uh, keep pushing it through um you know the 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 point where things kind of shift for me though i think is like during the pandemic uh I was working at another local university um, and I had a job that didn't require me to do a whole lot because there wasn't a whole lot happening on the campus and I was working from home. And so I had a lot of time uh, while meeting my job obligations, mind you, I had a lot of time to edit video. And uh, so that's when I really started digging into the editing. Uh, I, I think I'd always been intimidated by editing and I, I, always, I always thought someone else was going to be editing the editor of the movie. So I, when I started having that much more time to throw into editing and I had all that material to work with, um, that that's when I, I finally had the sort of revelation like, oh my gosh, when you put this stuff together, it's a lot like writing. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, just shifting to try this next to that and wow, that, that works. You have the other visual dim dimension, of course, and then you have the audio stuff you can, you can do. But there's a lot of a similarity to the process of writing, I think, at least editing. Um, and so then I, I felt, then I just, and I just saw how it all fit together, how I could fit it all together and how I could complete it. So then I just pushed through. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and David mentioned that we work together. So the, the job I have over there, Tulane, I'm a videographer. So that is a kind of culmination of making that sort of uh, pivot into something else. And, um, and so this, I use, you know, a rough cut of this movie to kind of show that I could do this kind of work. And that's how I was able to, you know, in part, get the job, uh, that I have now, which I'm super happy with. Um, Derek does really good work. And Jude, okay. And, and thank you. And, and, and I should really emphasize that Jude is, is, uh, he's, he's so, uh, such a positive guy, you know, and, and so energetic and kind of an, isn't something infectious about infectious about his positivity uh, he always finds a way to kind of shift the dial a little bit to make him king of the world you know and uh so you know he's he's he boosts everyone's ego around him too and, and it, can, it can feel fatuous and it's silly at times you know the over over the top things he says but it's still it's so charming anyway you know i, I don't know so I, I think being around him Although it's challenging because he's intense and it's hard to get a word in edgewise. Um, and uh, he speaks, you know, with commas, not periods. Uh, so it's exhausting. Um, but I had so we had some, you know, so much of this material uh, over the last decade was shot with uh, my friend Kaylin Hanrahan. She's the director of photography in the movie. And so she and I shot almost all of it. And uh, and so she's a lot of fun to hang out with and she really had a great uh you know uh connection with jude as well and so it was just fun hanging out there so it was easy to shoot and accumulate accumulate uh material over that such a long period of time partly because it was fun to do you know? yeah if it was tedious and just laborious and he was a jerk and i don't know 
I, I might not have been able to stick with it. But and, and he was also so hands off in terms of editorially what we did with the material. He's like he was he's ex, kind of an extremist on civil liberties and, and, and freedom, you know, and and so you, you, freedom of the press and freedom of the artist. And so he, he he would he would give his life for other people to have artistic freedom. So um, so that's also been very heartening as well to have a subject who's so uh, generous in that way. And I think like people who um, what, what, when you were telling you, you mentioned in, in one of the stories that you were telling us, you said, oh, as an aside, there's this crazy thing I have to tell you. And that's him. Or at least like yeah. that in my limited experience with you know meeting him briefly and watching him in, in this documentary that's him he's just like tangent 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 and um like you said hard to get a word in edgewise and but just a brilliant mind when it comes to chess um and again like i think like that's one of the most compelling things about this movie which is you're there's this guy who who you you could easily just other than the fact that he's wearing this bright red beret just sort of dismiss if you're not into that scene at all if you're not into chess at all you just see this guy and you're like well you know he's he's figured out a way to play the game so that he can take money from people and and then just leave it at that um Mm -hmm. but he has a background in chess that's really really impressive and he clearly has an, an incredible gift um as evidenced by some of his accomplishments and all of this is revealed over the course of the movie um and i think like that's just i don't know if that's necessarily the point but like it was one of the major takeaways that i had from it which is like looks can be deceiving um yeah hiding in plain sight huh yeah um so i have a, i have a, a question kind of a actually coming from thirty thousand feet um so uh is derek is this your is this the first this is the first movie yeah. you've created correct uh correct i'm, I'm curious as to like um because I, I often think about you know i went i went to school to be a teacher and i you know did my whole undergrad thing. And I'll never forget that when I got my first job and I was going into that job, I had this moment of like, I still don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do. You know, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you start? They, they teach you all these little things, but they don't teach you how to start on day one really. So I guess my question, like, so just as a filmmaker, what were the things like you found out you didn't know um, what were the oh crap moments? Um, you know, just just from the process, because oh, I guess the reason why I asked this is you mentioned you know your director of uh, uh, photography, um, and I you know it's like those roles. You know, you just think when you think about making a movie, you know, a kid thinks about making a movie. They just think about picking up a camera and shooting things. But anyway, what were the things that you the learning le- the learning lessons you had? I think I'm much closer to a kid than you might imagine in terms of like when this started. Yeah, I didn't really know. I knew how to use a camera as a, a still camera. I, I taken photography classes. I developed film, you know, back still darkroom, you know, all that. And I had the writing background, but I, I had no digital, no sound recording, nothing in that area. So that was just a good thing. My, my friend Trey, who I mentioned, he, 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 what he and I started together and he was going to be the editor. Then Caitlin came on. Uh, then the three of us were a team. Um, and she and I were just going to shoot and he was going to edit. But he, it, it, within a year or so, the, the dimension of the, our understanding of the project kind of changed. And also my focus about this idea of changing this career path, getting out of the student support role. So to get back to your question. So I really didn't know, in terms of like a, a whole, holy cow, how, how do I do this kind of stuff? It was like, I started off with a digital Rebel camera with an on-camera on, on mic, uh, a road mic, you know, kind of a mic. And uh, that was all fine and good. And some of the footage made it into the documentary. Uh, not a lot. 2014, my father passed away and he left me 
you know, some money. It wasn't a huge amount, but I was able to get Sennheiser wireless lavalier mics. And so that kind of changed the audio dimension. That got a lot better at that point. We also upgraded to Canon 5D Mark III cameras. Um, and so I had a, I had a, a fair range of uh, lenses because just my still photography days. So I was able to use a 200, which I didn't use, didn't use much, but at a, a 24 to 50. And uh, then I got the 5D, which doesn't have the crop factor of a rebel camera, so there, you get you get a better the full range of the lens and so forth. And I had a really wide angle lens with 18 or something like that. So, you know, these are pretty like prosumer level gear is what I'm getting at. Except for Sennheiser, those, you know, Hollywood movie sets use Sennheiser wireless labs and stuff. But everything else is, is pretty like prosumer. The, five, the Canon 5D cameras, those are like photojournalism cameras that, you know, newspaper uh, photographers use. Um, except for that historical moment, like 2011, 2012, when people started making moves with DSLR cameras and specifically with Canon 5Ds because they could uh, get raw footage out of them. I was never technically proficient to, to hack my camera in that way, but that was going on in the ether at the time, uh, filmmaking-wise. Uh, the Magic Lantern uh, plug-in people uh, put on their cameras. Um, so in terms of things going wrong, there's so many, like we just, the movie, it starts with the, the occult, with a guy named Jesse James, great name, uh, who beats the Judas game, and he's like all excited. And um, that was uh, that we did an interview with him at the French Market Seafood and Bar Restaurant, restaurant and bar, and it was great stuff. But it was like this audio was terrible, really. So I end up not being able to use that. Um, another time, I had. He had some a thing set up with Jude and his sister uh, having a conversation, and and one mic, the wireless wasn't on the right channel, so it was all, all screwed up audio on that on the line. So there are things we that really happen is kind of make you stab yourself in the heart or in the eye, and make you want to just stop doing any of it, you know. Um, but it, I got to the point where I just decided to. I was able to kind of put blinders on about all the sort of failures along the way and just see whatever it is we had was this box, uh, a shoebox full of tapes. It was all digital. There was no shoebox. But in my mind, there was a shoebox of footage. And just I just need to start plucking. And there's a movie in there somewhere. It's kind of ultimately how I approach it uh, and how I came to terms with like the myriad of failures that happen a lot. Of but sometimes you find ways around your mistakes. It, like there's some B-roll I shot when Jude's in Croatia uh, competing in this uh, tournament. Uh, and there's this woman, Marilyn Pelius, who she went along with him. And he kind of coached her through the tournament. And she went her she wins her first game in this FIDE rated tournament. And she's so excited. And he's excited. They went down and they analyzed her game. And I shot it all, but the, I had the audio the whole time. I had none of the audio. And I thought I just was the stupidest person in the world for a while. But then later, years later, I'm editing it. Like, I'll just try it. I'll just this B-roll, it, it didn't need to have the audio. I get by without it. So, you know, sometimes it's not as bad as you fear. And, and, and always finding finding creative uh, solutions to your mistakes is, you know, that's, that's, that's what art is for oh, almost all of it, I would imagine. I think it's like Murphy's Law, too, that we convince ourselves that the stuff that we lose is just super valuable. Yeah. Right. You're, right. You're like, oh god, I lost the thing, and it was this money quote. It may not have been, but you trick yourself into feeling that way. It's true. It's true. So, Derek, let me ask right quick. Uh, given that you spend so much time, you know, with your subject, whatever, you know, when you're when you're living such a passion of love, how do you then trim it down? How do you start that process of thinking, what is the story that I want to tell yeah. and what doesn't fit it? To, so I'm just thinking in terms of like with Star Wars, when we think about that, that movie came together in the editing room. It was something else when they were shooting it. And then they had to sit down at one point and think, okay, what is going to be this movie? So how, how did you come to that process? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I... 
I had I had a vision, you know, the, the article I wrote about Jude back in 2011, in a lot of ways serves as a kind of template in the sense that I, his sort of arc of his life story and the things I knew I wanted, right? But I only had the footage I had, so I couldn't tell everything anyway, if I had it all, uh, is to, unless I was doing a miniseries or like, and I, I did contemplate that, the idea of doing a multiple part piece. Um, but to make it fit into like an hour and a half, like 100 minutes or so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of really important stuff I get at, but I, I didn't or couldn't. Uh, a good example of that would be his Jude uh, writing career. He had a really interesting writing career when he was in San Francisco. He and he continued to write after that, but like he was mostly published there. Uh, he he wrote a, a regular column for the Berkeley Barb, it's a, a notorious weekly alternative, uh, and. Uh, and then also for Francis Ford Coppola had a an all paper for like a year called City Paper or something like that in San Francisco, and Jude had a column in that as well. And these columns were like bonkers, just crazy stories of his travels across the country and his Texas, but stories about Janis Joplin and and holding her uh, uh, purse full of thousands of dollars and. And and all the being at a prison where a riot happened, uh, just, uh, being at a, like a, a diner and, and fighting some guy to defend a couple, just really over the top stuff. And um, and I would love to get into getting into that, but I couldn't quite figure out how to do it for a couple of reasons. Was one is it's a writing, so it's not visual in and of itself that much. You know, I did record him reading columns, and we had that footage, and maybe I'll revisit it in some fashion at some point. But that that wasn't. But also to make it, I don't know. We I couldn't get to San Francisco either to shoot B-roll of any of this kind of scenery that he was describing. Um, anyway, so there's like it's a big hole in the, in terms of the documentary. I feel in terms of the comprehensive the comprehensive story of Jude Acres. In a way, I thought it'd be really good. Uh, an animated piece. I think a lot of that stuff was so, because he's like the only source in a lot of these stories, right? So it's not like I can, you get check these. And there's people who, there are people who uh, differ with his rendition events, I'll put it that way. There's one person who's rather prestigious out west who made the, there's a guy who uh, in the movie called Kerry Lawless, who's a, and he has all of Jews columns online and, but this one uh, person named Max Burkett, who Jude thinks the world of, but uh, they had a complicated history. And 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 Max does not agree with Jude's portrayal of Max, and and he disagrees with some other things too. So anyway, it was fraught in a lot of ways. And I did some interviews with Max, but it was like uh, to try to find a way to like make that come to life for uh, in a movie. And uh, and I it, it was a Zoom interview. And, wasn't great, and I had no. I couldn't go out to Oklahoma or wherever he is. I, I can't remember. Anyway, so that's a good example of like a, a big part of the story. I really wish I could have done something with. Um, and I have a, an idea for a sequel that called Jude Acres Rides Again, where he travels and gives exhibitions in all these cities that he wrote about back in the day, and then we can kind of like get at the uh, stories that way. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. But Jude's up for. I, there's a dude in his game, but I need someone to come up with a lot of money to make that happen. Um, so there's some other things. Like, yeah, so the Janis Joplin thing is a, is a good example because that's really fun story, but, you know, she's not around. There aren't other common people I can really interview. Uh, and, and she, you know, it wasn't like they were lovers. It wasn't like they were, like, shared a life together. It's more like a celebrity friend. Uh, you know, so I'm not sure if that's the most important thing in his life. And to that, if it, if that should go in there before, uh, above, like say I have a chapter in the movie about the Jude Acres rule, rule where the uh, United States Chess Federation froze Jude's rating for like 30, 40 years, you know, I think that's a, you know, Janis Joplin or the Jude Acres rule. The Jude Acres rule is a bit more arcane, but for chess people, that's an important thing, and they would have like called me out if I didn't actually address it. Whereas the Janis Joplin thing. I'd love to get into that, but I don't quite know how to do it. And that's why I think I get animated. It could be a good graphic novel, I think, or, or just an animated <laughs> thing in some fashion. 
Um, so yeah, so to get to your, back to your question, I, I think some things lend themselves to the form. Some tar- parts of the story stories lend themselves to the form of a movie than other parts of a story. And then it's just I, I, I mostly had to follow the footage on some level, and I imagine that's probably the case in Star Wars too. It's like we have this. When I put it together like this, this really sings. And I put it like this, it's kind of boring, you know. Um, and so there's it's just trial and error in terms of how how things assemble. But for me, in terms of my documentary, once I had, I, it's broken up into chapters, and each chapter has, is sort of like a, you know, like a, a chapter. It's its own sort of self-contained part of a, of this larger story. And uh, so once I kind of settled on those areas I wanted to hit, then it's just a matter of doing it as concisely as I could. That's also satisfying to watch. I feel like the, um, I think you hit on the, the important bits though. And, and like you said, that if, if you don't have the footage, then it, it may be a more, it may not be an interesting thing to just watch someone explain a story or tell a story right, exactly. um, if you don't have any sort of visual elements to go along with that it becomes it begins to become a question of is it worth doing um, right there's a uh, Kurt Vonnegut line so about every sentence in a story should either advance the the, the story or the or a character you know? um, some things are really interesting some things you know and there's that whole you know kill your Darwin thing too sometimes great stuff just doesn't uh work cohere to- right with the whole the total the whole you know so new orleans is very clearly the this probably the co-lead yeah jude, jude is the main character but the 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 co-lead would be new orleans and i'm wondering how much of that was deliberate on your end was it how important was it to you to tell the story of new orleans when talking about him i mean again like he chose to live here the city's obviously very important to him but um i think it comes through that at least in watching it that it's really important to you too yeah absolutely uh he he does his 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 life is lived outside mostly it's you know, obviously when he's home, he's studying chess and all that, but he's, his livelihood, the whole purpose of this movie in, in, in some sense is him out there in the world getting by on his own terms. Uh, it happens to be chess in his case, uh, but it's also very specifically Lower Decatur Street in the French Quarter. And, and, and he bounced around before he got to that spot. He was in, uh, and I couldn't, I didn't quite get into all this in the documentary time being what it is, but he was at Maple Leaf for a while and a couple other places. And he, before and Jackson Square, I did touch on that um, before he really settled on this spot. And, and it is a perfect spot. It, it, and it, it's just the the, the sidewalks very wide there, and uh, and the lighting and the bathrooms nearby and all the establishment. And he and he's such a promoter of the whole neighborhood. He, he, they all love him around there. You, you go into the, the Santa store over there, or the Cafe Spizas, or French Market restaurant and bar. Or, Gazebo, cafe, uh, Southern Candy Makers—they they all love Jude Acres. The t-shirt shops. He goes to all of them. He makes a point of like he'll he'll bring them gambits. He, he just talks them up. He'll, he he's always bringing them tourists to different locations. Like have your eat your chicken here if you're over you know seafood restaurant over here. Um, and so yeah, boosterism you know it comes through with the neighborhood too. And so there's a there's a lot of good vibes there and. And, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the documentary I always wanted to make but never quite could pull it off would be finding people who are just, who are just coming to the city kind of cold. Maybe they've been here. Maybe they're just tourists. Um, but they come upon Jude's table and they end up playing chess and have a great time with them. I, I love to be able to follow those folks from when they park, going down to Cater Street and happening upon his table and just the initial banter and all that. And then... You know, hanging out for a couple hours, and some people may leaving him and coming back later on, and just following that whole story. I think that would have been a great intro to, to the movie in a way because uh, people come away with so many fond memories and experiences from Jude's table, whether they're local or tourists. Uh, the locals more so in a lot of ways because they they were they're returners, they, they're friends. They, they you know they come back time again, 
and he and he's uh so yes to get back to your question david when we first in 2013 you know we'd start we'd started in 2012 2013 we had a kickstarter campaign and we had to make a video to kind of like show people what we're trying to do and trey edited that and there's one chapter on that called the neighborhood and so from the very beginning that was something we always wanted to capture is like the 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 sort of like catch that lightning in a bottle of of the French Quarter at its best, um, and you know maybe at its worst it here and there, but it, it, it try to catch the complexity and the richness of it of, of the place. And I'm, it's fun. It's it, I'm still a bit of a Midwestern tourist when it comes to the French Quarter. I, I, I haven't that hasn't worn off totally for me yet. Um, so we'll see. But so far so good. I spent so much time down there. Uh, actually, after a while, I was starting to feel like I was becoming sort of like a a French Quarter character myself. <laughs> well, that's kind of lugging stuff around. That's a whole category of person, isn't it? I mean, like, and and they're they're, they're in your movie. I mean, um, yeah. not just Jude. Yeah. There are other people that that you know you highlight and, and profile. That I'm like, well, yeah. There's a there's a quarter rat, or there's you know there's somebody that lives this existence. This is what they choose to do. This is, they think this is the best place to be. Yeah, I wanted to look like Nora. One of the the people in the movie wanted to really look like Nora. Wanted to be, you know, feel like you're there. Yeah, and if you're not from New Orleans, you don't realize the different dynamics of the quarter. You just think of the French Quarter as one big section, and you don't realize there's whole different dynamics from the part where everybody's having the fluorescent drinks spiked with the cheap booze. And the back towards uh, where it's more residential, where it's still somewhat bohemian in certain aspects. It's still very much a small knit community in there. Yeah, very walkable too. So, Derek, mm-hmm. who are who are your inspirations as a uh, filmmaker, and maybe even as a you know documentarian? Uh, Werner Herzog, I'm a big fan of. Uh, even in some ways more his earlier work before he did. did I mean, you know, this documentary is all amazing, but they're so dependent on his quirky, weird presence. On camp. I mean, he's such an amazing guy. But his early, uh, Fitzcarraldo, Koskinski, uh, who was a terrible human being, as far as I understand it, but his Koskinski movies were pretty amazing. And uh, so I, I like those a lot. And I'm a big fan of uh, Charlie Kaufman, too. And he's not a documentary but guy, he's a screenwriter, but he did. Uh, being John Malkovich and uh, adaptation and you know a bunch of other ones, so he's someone I was like I always want to see his work. And I, I love the Coen Brothers. Um, you know, I'm not as no as far as documentaries I like. There's like the one about uh, uh, Winnebago Man. Have you ever seen the Winnebago Man documentary? Have you heard about that? Huh. Oh, yeah, y'all got to Google and just look, look watch some YouTube clips. It's just uh, it's really uh, fun to watch. Um, I'll give you a very short synopsis about it. I'll try to be very brief. The Winnebago company is making an industrial film to promote their latest model of a Winnebago out west in the heat somewhere in some desert. And so it's a a small production company out there. And this main guy who's on camera and also the sort of the writer, producer of this whole thing, they have a lot of cut. It was a tough production, apparently. And so he, he screws up a lot and he cusses his head off. And this gets very angry and loses his mind. Apparently, some of the people on the staff uh, made a special edit of all of these sort of uh, uh, blow-ups by him. And this was like shared, like this was found footage. It was like back in the 80s and 90s was like people were sharing it on tapes and they got online. Um, And so this uh, filmmaker, uh, this film professor, I think in Southwest University somewhere in Arizona or something like that, he was into found footage uh, movies and all that. And so he's really into the Winnebago Man clips and he finds the Winnebago Man and tells his story. So if you ever have a chance to watch it, that's a great movie. So that's a really, and there's another one, uh, I don't know if you can find this one out much any, anywhere, but it's called I Like to Eat Flies. I think it's called I Like to Eat Flies. And it's about this diner in New York, this, this mercurial uh, dude who ran this, incredible diner in new york but he was mean to everyone and uh and so this guy is just following him around and telling his story and the the, the big thing i took away from that early on when i was making my documentary was i think it was shot like on vhs tape and the the filmmaker 
he's holding a lav mic in his hand and he's like pointing it at the guy and he's shooting and you see his hand holding the lav mic at the guy and i'm like oh man if he can get away with that i should be okay you know so um i took some solace from that one uh let's see any other ones uh jump out uh yeah the coin the coen brothers and i love the black mirror uh series so you know i, I like documentaries but I, I, you know i think at heart i like to do scripted stuff so so star wars um we're trying right, to think, think of a, yeah think we were one. trying to think of a connection first of all i got okay you got you, right. you like the old um you, see, you like the original movie the best or at least that's the one that's you've seen the most and is the one for you. Um, for the record, that's my favorite too. So that's not like a cop out okay. answer. Um, okay. All right. Um, George Lucas, any admiration there? Um, no, I'm not. Okay. 1977. I'm, I'm like 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Star Wars comes out. I remember, uh, you know, saw it like everyone else. Had a great time. But the movie that really got me that summer was Close Encounters of the, of the Third Kind. Right? The same, they came out the same year. And so being 11 years old, in my mind, I kind of got like, I'm on the Close Encounters team. I'm not on Star Wars team. You know, I don't know how, why, why that became, a, it got in my head that I kind of formulated that way. Um, I had like a Star Wars comic book. I remember reading that and enjoying that. It was like oversized. I wish I kept it um but uh you know i guess um i'm not a big i'm not huge in sci-fi i guess what i liked about like for example close encounters the whole richard dreyfus character and his obsession with, with the potatoes and the mountain thing you know what i'm talking about oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. i love that stuff love that stuff i still love that but like so that's you know that's just quirky weird human stuff and it, it doesn't that is it's not even you know it's barely sci-fi almost in a way uh of course it was but so anyway i i i've just never been uh i find it a little cold you know and uh so i've I've, you know went to there was empire strikes back there's star wars and then then there's that one a few years ago with the african-american actor who's on there and he's getting a lot of people are weirdly giving him a lot of grief for being an african-american actor in a star wars movie or something so i I saw that one and i enjoyed that it wasn't great but well finn um um the character who played um actor played finn uh, john boyega um and the stormtrooper isn't supposed to be black for some reason which (laughs) i don't know um your racism is showing but um one of the ideas i did come to when i was trying to relate this back to star wars and fandom though is this idea that you're profiling in your movie people who sort of take a fanaticism um about a particular subject um and and just like roll with it And, and in in your case it was chess and in the subjects of your film's case it was chess um i'm wondering did you learn anything um over the process of you know talking to jude not just jude but some of the other people who you know like the people he took under his wing for example and um this pursuit you know they they they, they're, they're devoting their life to this pursuit that isn't necessarily going to be lucrative for them and I'm wondering if, like, there were any sort of takeaways that you had from that. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating, you know, the the dedication, the obsession, um, the insecurity, even of it is like, because it built into it is losing, right? And that's a, psychologically, that's an interesting thing. I think that you you win and you lose, and I think that's what makes chess also interesting. Um, it's really ripe for metaphor and to a lot too. Like Jude will emphasize, you know, touch moves, right? You touch a move, you touch a piece, you have to move it. If you step in front of a bus, you don't get to take back your move. The bus hits you. Um, and so I love that people can weave that, the, the, the game's complex enough to weave uh, through people's life experiences in, in that way, where they can see it in everywhere they turn. Um, and so I think there's probably, uh, 
I know that's the case with people who are into Star Wars and stuff. The complexity of any fandom is like that. The complexity of which people in their in their sort of narrow scope that they go, how deep they go in the this stuff is amazing. You know, it's an extraordinary amount of headspace and, and ability and uh, and uh, and drive uh, to do that. It, it, chess, you have the, you know. There's, there's the whole win and lose thing. So, like, uh, like for example, I'm fascinated by watching some. Every so often, I'll watch some Twitch uh, episodes or series or whatever with uh, uh, Nakamura, the grandmaster, chess grandmaster, who visited New Orleans last year, by the way. Um, Hikaru Nakamura, who is just watching. There's this okay. There's this guy in Europe who won some talent contest contest called Ray Enigma, and he'll wear this like bodysuit and is like all these sort of circles and just like you couldn't tell who it was and he would play it and, and it's Europe. So chess matters. And so like this guy was like a finalist in some America's got, you know, Europe talent contest and his, the final um, performance was a game against uh, a, a Karpov, a former world champion, but much older now. Um, anyway, so I was watching Nakamura watch this game and, and just clicking through it. And every move the guy would make, he'd be like, oh, yeah, he's like a 2,500 player. Oh, no, no, he's like 23, 23, 24. You know, the way he was analyzing this guy's ability with every single move, and it's like really fast game. Um, that's just astounding to me, that, that uh, the complexity and how yet how effortless it is for, for folks who are really gifted in that area. Um, so as far as now, it's interesting now, like, that's another thing that's fun about Jude in terms of chess. Because he spans the whole gamut, you know. He's he's this person on the street who any stranger can come up to and play. And he's accessible way more than other chess players of his ability tend to be. Usually, play people are as good as, uh, at chess as Jude. They're they're just entering tournaments, you know, uh, against other high elite, you know, very strong players. So most people don't have access to them unless they play some public exhibition for him. But Jude also goes to those big exhibitions, you know, in Europe and so forth sometimes. And so it was fun to see him in that space. And you're talking about, uh, these are really intense folks. Their whole life, they've spent perfecting their ability at playing this game. Uh, you know, 70-year-old, 80-year-old men and a few women. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it just, it's, it's a funny world, though, too. It's like there's there's all kinds of controversies in chess, and and there's like, I don't know. It's fascinating that the personalities kind of always show themselves. Uh, everything's a personality test, and, and chess is no different in that way. Um, so, uh, but so yeah, Jude's kind of an anomaly there too, because he's like kind of flamboyant and and, and energy and very uh, demonstrative and, and so forth. And there are a lot of those folks, at least those old European guys I saw, were pretty staid bunch for the most part. Um, though they drank, they they drank a fair amount and smoked a lot of cigarettes. But like the local scene, uh, you know, chess fans. You talked about like, like it, it, the game is uh, more. Uh, you know, people are more into the game now than ever, uh, despite you know, you know artificial intelligence and game engines and all that. That's only made it more popular. You know, so it's fascinating the durability of the game, and um, and what people will do with it. Crazy. We all watched the Queen's Gambit. Um, when that came out and really enjoyed yeah. that. And I know that like now suddenly everyone who saw that is like, now I got to start playing chess, you know, um, every time it seems yeah, it like a huge boom. Yeah. yeah. You know, a new project comes along like this and it just reinvigorates more interest. So. Well, it's interesting with that one too, since it happened during the pandemic. Right. So you had the uh, people playing online. It was a perfect sort of outlet for folks who were going a little stir crazy probably, you know, Mm-hmm. So some a lot of times people who play Jude out there, he's like the only person in the flesh that they play. Like they were always playing online on chess.com or something. But as far as like sitting at an actual board against across from another person, doesn't happen a lot for some folks. Um, but there's a really active local chess community here, and um, there's really some other really great strong players that come out of here. So um, uh, Jude's not as I mean, he doesn't play again in, in local tournaments or anything like that anymore. Um, part of it's partly because of his beef with the U.S. Chess Federation, but um, he's done that. You know, he did. The, he he was champ of Louisiana a long time ago. He, 
the winning and losing of it is the part of it that is sort of interesting to me too because um the older i get the less tolerance i have for live sports <laughs> if yeah. i have a rooting interest i should say if i don't have a rooting interest then i'll just critique everyone's play um <laughs> but if uh if i have a rooting interest i can get pretty agitated because most days you got a 50 50 shot you know and in the professional ranks either a little bit above or a little bit below that mark um at the college level like again the the percentages can vary even more than that um but like i gotta think for somebody like jude to expose himself to all manner of player as good as he was, it makes me think, well, he knew he would win. <laughs> and that yeah, had to have been some comfort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he mows most people over, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And if someone does beat him, he's like, all right, let's play another game. He, he, and then he recalibrates and usually beats him after that. Um, but, yeah, the win-loss thing is fascinating. And that's why I wanted to start the documentary, like, with you losing, because that's such a – like, let's be adults here. All chess players lose, right? Carlson loses games sometimes. And he's, no one's, it's close to, you know, Nakamura loses games often to Carlson. But, you know, so everyone loses. So it, it's built into it. So I wanted to kind of disabuse the idea that there's a sort of like perfect, perfect player out there. But, um, yeah, that's a hard thing. And, and I think he, Jude, a lot of what he does out there is there's an element of, I don't want to like make it seem inauthentic, but it's, there's a, a shtick to it too, right? You know, you kind of play your role and you get into your, you know, he, he'll bow and dramatically shake your hand and, and kind of like laugh it off a little bit and say, all right, let's play again, little motherfucker. And he kind of, like, <laughs> he doesn't say that, but like he, he does recalibrate and you can tell he's very focused and he's not going to let that happen again. Uh, so it matters, but he, he's, he's pretty gracious about it. He gets a little quieter for sure. <laughs> So, Derek, you've been, uh, these have been wonderful stories and great with your time. Appreciate uh, hearing what you've, uh, what you've done with this uh, movie and with the story of, of Jude. Um, what's next? What's next on your plate? Do you have uh, any other ideas or any other movies uh, you're thinking of? Yeah, there's a script I started writing uh, over pandemic, you know, that time. Uh, yeah, that I, that I, I fancy, and I'm trying to, I recently had some other ideas on how to take it a little farther. I was a little stuck. So I'm, and I've been writing it with the idea of like, how I want to write something I can actually shoot. So I don't have like nothing too uh, crazy. Um, and so I had some sort of basic ideas that were kind of getting me started in that regard. So I think that's coming together. So that's what I'm hoping to do. And I've, I've talked to a couple other people about different ideas. I mean, you make a documentary, people do come to you with a documentary ideas, you know, I, 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 a couple of people uh, come up really interesting you know there's i see documentaries everywhere you know that's part of the thing that was sort of frustrating in a way taking so long making this movie was like oh my gosh there's so many documentaries out there available if you want to make them um so yeah it, a lot of things kind of pull at me but uh i think my highest priority is working on the script and um and then just seeing this movie out into the world uh, as much as i can but yeah working on the script and then there's there's a friend I made, uh, a local writer who I'm hoping to collaborate with, uh, a couple of writers, actually. I want to collaborate on a couple of scripts with them. Um, one's a documentary, another one would be fiction, you know, a fictional piece. So that's what I hope to do. Man in the Red Beret, uh, still making its way around the festival circuit. Um, where Going to Huntsville, Texas tomorrow. There you go. Huntsville. And then... Uh, I know there's an, another New Orleans showing coming up. It's uh, April 3rd, uh, Wednesday, April 3rd at 3.30 p.m., uh, the New Orleans Jazz Museum. And Jude will be there if you're interested in meeting Jude. I, I should hope so. It's just down the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Bailey, Bailey Badaway, who's featured in the movie as well, should be there on, on hand as well. And she's a lot of fun. She's, she's the one who created this nonprofit to promote chess in New Orleans and Jude's legacy. Um, and she used to work at the jazz museum. So. There we go. Well, cool. All right. 
All right. Well, good. Well, well good. thank you all. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck with the with the uh, with the movie and the festival and everything. And uh, so, and can can people find you online anywhere? Are you do you have a social media presence? Um, let's see. Uh, on Instagram, the man in the red beret, all one word. Uh, JudeAcres.com. I still run that for Jude. I post I post regular updates there about where where the movie will screen. There's a page there dedicated to that. Um, and then I have my own website, b2l2.com. And um, I'm actually working on a piece. I'm, I haven't published much there in the last few years, but I've been uh, just thinking about this movie and some other things. I'm trying to pull together a little essay there. So, yeah, I'm there as well. Um, I think that's my main main public access points. Cool. Well, everybody, yeah. everybody uh, check Derek out. So um, anything else for the good of the order, Dave, Fredo? No, right. no, just uh, go see the movie. <laughs> right on. Good deal, y'all. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. And uh, everybody have a great week. And we will, as always, say who dat. Who dat. And we'll see who dat? you next week. My monkey.